The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. One of the many wonderful things about the vegan world is that this way of living helps, well, gosh, everything the personal and the global. Today's episode reflects that. First, we're going to talk about something that affects so many individuals, getting a good night's sleep. And in the second segment, we'll look at a film on a subject that could change the entire world. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, the host of the Main Street Vegan Program, and very pleased to welcome you as ever. If you stop in at MainStreetVegan.net, you can learn more about what we're up to. Uh, There'll be information for finding out more about today's guests. You'll find the weekly Main Street Vegan blog, info on my books, and on Main Street Vegan Academy that trains and certifies vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And interestingly enough, our first guest is a graduate of that very program, and she is joining us today all the way from the UK. She is Deirdre Barr, a holistic sleep specialist who has shadowed at the pioneering insomnia clinics at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Welcome, Deirdre. Oh, hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about a passion. And yes, I am a coach and vegan coach, and I enjoyed my training with you very much. And it, it does blend into everything I offer in terms of holistics and focusing on sleep. Why sleep? Why did that attract you? Um, it, it was kind of an accident in a way. I've always, and it's, it's horrible to say to my clients, but I've always been a brilliant sleeper. <laughs> and, you know, so they think that maybe I don't understand how awful bad sleep can be, but I have had periods of poor sleep. And I do recognize, you know, how distressing it can be. Basically, I arrived at my fascination with sleep through being a yoga teacher when all my students just kept saying, oh, I slept so well after that class. And that just led me into this very deep, almost 
obsession with the subconscious and neurobiology and all the link to the breath work we do in yoga and how it affected our sleep. But I knew that having evidence-based work was really important if I was going to work with people. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes some of the holistic practices haven't had the research or the science, um, peer-reviewed science put behind it. So that's why I started to study on the clinical side as well. And then I've blended my holistic um, treatments such as meditation and diet and exploring nature with the the clinical work and that I learned in with some with some of the hospitals. So how big of a problem is this? If you were just to look at a, a group gathered at a stadium for a sporting event, which after the pandemic <laughs> will be happening again, and you looked at all those thousands of people, about what percentage of them, give or take, had a good night's sleep last night? Well, the way I put it, and when I'm when I'm speaking to a client or I'm doing a group session as well, I I always don't want people to feel alone because insomnia and sleep problems can feel very lonely. It's quite an intimate thing as well. People don't really talk about it that much. They might say, oh, I didn't have a good night's sleep, but they don't acknowledge how it's affecting them. So I say, if you're on your street and there's 10 other people on your street at night, you can guarantee that at least four of them aren't getting a good night's sleep at any one time. Now, whether that's, you know, regular is a different matter, but um, insomnia and, sl and sleep problems affect all of us at one stage in our lives. It just depends whether it becomes, um, you know, a clinical problem or it's affecting our ability to cope. Um, so we've all heard the term insomnia, but I'm not sure that we know exactly what it means. What, what's the scientific view of insomnia? Yeah, and, and that's a really, really important point because there's a difference between having a sleepless night or few and having insomnia. Insomnia is a clinical sleep disorder in which you either have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. And it can be short term, so it could be, you know, lasting a few weeks, or it can be long term where it becomes chronic and we define it as being chronic when it happens at least three nights a week for three months or more and it has the effects it has many different effects and actually indeed comorbidities as well there's a lot of quite serious um, um, comorbidities with insomnia and linked um, causes that have been researched like depression obesity, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's and diabetes are all linked to long-term chronic insomnia, which is, I must stress, different to, you know, not sleeping well for a shorter period of time. I, I do want to make that clear. So what's the difference when people have trouble falling asleep versus getting up in the night and maybe or maybe not being able to quickly fall back to sleep? Are there different types of people affected in those different ways? Yeah, it's, it wouldn't say it's types of people, although there are things that um, you have a chronotype, which is kind of like you're a night owl or you're a lark or you're a wolf. And that's a, it's kind of almost inherited or, or 
embedded style of sleep pattern um, that is, is challenging for, you know, our work, our typical nine to five workers, because if you're a wolf, you don't want to go to bed until much later. But in terms of falling asleep or waking up, that's not specifically a different type of person would have that. It's a different type of insomnia, basically. And you, you hit the nail on the head. The, the, the two real uh, real issues that people tend to have are not being able to fall asleep or waking up and tossing and turning and not being able to get back to sleep. So help, help us out <laughs> if we have one of these. So I, I know that there are a lot of kind of misconceptions that that people have about sleep you know there's warm milk and a hot bath and you know what just cut through some of that and and help us know what might help and what we can just skip yeah well um I think I'll wrap up with top tips but what okay. is important is dispelling the myths which you've just hit on and I have to say that that the press is is often very sensationalist about sleep and you know we touched on something before there's a big difference some of the myths are sleep deprivation versus insomnia sleep deprivation is when you don't allow someone to sleep like in a research study and you know some of those impacts are are very serious you know driving after sleep deprivation is akin to um being drunk basically literally it's you know this the brain reacts in the same way the the alertness um whereas insomnia is you have an opportunity to sleep but you can't because of of stress or other factors so another myth as well is i mean the eight hours everyone's heard this this thing about eight hours sleep and and also that you need less when you're older and and those are really kind of myths actually um the eight hours is more what's more important is your sleep quality not the quantity and we tend to get the better sleep earlier on when we fall asleep the deep wave sleep when your brain heals and and some of the benefits of um, of the great benefits, so much good stuff happens during that deep wave sleep. It organizes our memory and learning. It repairs and, and our muscles and our growth. It protects our immune system and it reduces the stress hormones. But it doesn't mean that you have to have eight hours to have quality, healthy sleep. Um, another myth. So how many times do you think you wake up during the night or do you think typical person wakes up during the night? I would have no idea. Well, I, I would hope none at all. Yeah. But maybe you're going to tell me something else. Yeah, and people are really surprised about this. And if you're a good sleeper, you'd say what you said. And if you're a very poor sleeper, you'd probably say, oh, I, I wake up and I never go back to sleep. We do have these awakenings, and there's about 10 to 12, and in 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 you know, it's very difficult to categorize an average or a normal sleep, but 10 to 12 awakenings a night, but the big difference, and that would include someone like me who's, who never thinks they wake up, the big difference is it's about whether you remember them or not. And obviously, if you can't get back to sleep, 
you're going to remember them. True. So we all, yeah, we all have those awakenings. It's just that we might briefly, if you had, if you're on a brain scan, if you're on a, a cardio, uh, um, hooked up to a scan, you would see that you had an awakening and you're actually fully conscious and awake, but you just turn over and you roll over and you go back to sleep so you don't remember it. So that's another myth. Um, another really good myth that is good to debunk before we, you know, kind of talk about myth um, tips is catching up on sleep. Um, there's a, a sleep expert at Harvard called Robert Stickgold and he termed the um, catching up on sleep um, sleep bulimia where people think that they can you know hardwire all week and then just sleep all weekend but it really really upset upsets your circadian rhythms which makes it even harder to get to sleep and it can real it can predispose you to onset of insomnia to do that to mess with your routines like that um so catching up on sleep I mean, we all do it at times, but it's not really a good, healthy, uh, you know, you know um, tool. And it doesn't really give you the quality that you need. And, you know, one fun last myth is the, the whole, does cheese give me nightmares thing? <laughs> and, you know, there was a, a study done in 2015, and it did establish that dairy products are the foods most likely to give you a nightmare? And that 18% of, of the people in the study had found a correlation between late night eating and dairy and influ in, influence their dreams. So I thought I'd, I'd put that in there, <laughs> having a discussion with you from... Oh, well, that's one for the vegans. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know we just ace almost everything. And here's another one for us. That is absolutely fascinating. It is. I don't, they haven't found why. Um, I, I've read around the topic because I'm fascinated with anything to do with sleep, but um, you, there's all, a lot of people are lactose intolerant and so it's not giving them the rest and their digestion is super active. Um, and, and, you know, one of the tips is don't eat too late, whatever you eat, but especially not stimulants or things that you're not going to digest easily. Right. So we're talking here about your kind of garden variety, can't get to sleep, wake up in the night, but you've worked with people with some more unusual uh, kinds of sleep disturbances. What oh. are some of those? Yeah, yeah. Um, they tend to fall under a category called parasomnias, um, which are, like you say, unusual ones. Um I'm going to focus on one because I just find it so fascinating and it's called sleep paralysis. Um, and unusually for an, a parasomnia, it's actually fairly common, but a lot of people kind of have it and then they, they just experience it once or twice and they forget about it. And then when someone talks about it, they go, oh my goodness, that has happened to me. So up to 40% of people can have one or more episodes of sleep paralysis. And it's a state during when you're waking up or falling asleep. And it can happen in the middle of the night as well, where you're, you're quite aware, but you're unable to move or speak. And, and during that episode, you can hallucinate. You can hear or feel or see things that aren't there and and it, it's it's really 
only lasts a couple minutes usually, but it feels like hours. Um, and it's the reason it's so scary is because it's almost like you suddenly become alert, but you realize you, you can't move or, or make a sound. Um, and it can be accompanied by quite scary hallucinations. A, a, a common one is someone standing at the end of the bed or someone standing in the room. And I didn't realize, you know, I had one. I've only had two in my life and I didn't even know what they were and I'd forgotten about them until I studied this. Um, but one of the most common causes of sleep paralysis is sleep deprivation or a lack of sleep. So changing your sleep schedule and getting it disrupted can bring these on. Have you ever had one? No, no, okay. not not that. Yeah, I, I've thought that waking up at two o'clock and not being able to get back to sleep was as bad as it gets. So uh, you make me grateful. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not they're not nice, and it's it's one of but it's more common than it's one of the more common parasomnias actually. So um, yeah, you're lucky you haven't had it. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. So help us get fixed up. Yeah. Well, what do we do if our sleep is less than perfect? So obviously if you are heading in towards this insomnia definition, you really do need to seek help from a specialist because um, it can be quite individual and they can um, it can help you avoid medication and there's lots of, of treatment protocols that they can help you with. But my five ish top tips for improving sleep if you're not having chronic insomnia is number one sleep hygiene these are practices that are conducive to sleeping well on a regular basis like the temperature of the room having it cool enough not too hot your diet not eating too close to bedtime not exercising too close to bedtime having a bedtime ritual of a wind down and um switching off the devices earlier on because the blue light from the devices can disrupt your your circadian rhythm look up sleep hygiene google it there's loads of lists of them and just check through them don't dismiss the simple ones because i've had clients who say for example were having a bit of dark chocolate in the evening and when we removed that their sleep got better so they they didn't recognize that as a stimulant um Writing things down is part of that that is bothering you and making a list. It cuts down on the mental loop that repeats in our heads is is part of sleep hygiene as well. My second best tip is learning some form of breath work. So this is you know goes back to my yoga teacher training, um, pranayama, doing a regular breath work. It doesn't just improve your sleep. It, but if you do wake up, then doing a breath work practice can help you relax and soothe the mind. But also, just in, in, it just improves so much in your life in terms of stress management. Um, three, again, stress management. But this is included in the clinical um, framework that has been evidenced is a sense visualization, so meditation, but also rotating through the senses so doing a visualization that asks you to imagine touching smelling tasting things that's included in the program 
that's clinically evident. So that's CBTI, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, if your sleep's an issue, watch your stimulants like alcohol and caffeine, but foods as well, foods containing tyramine like bacon, cheese, ham, pepperoni, raspberries, they will keep you awake at night, dark chocolate. Um, and, and lastly, you know, building in um, a good exercise program three, at least three times a week, but not too close to bedtime. So, um, you know, it, a lot of them are about healthy lifestyle, but there's some particular ones with sleep hygiene that will focus on the sleep. Well, those all sound wonderful, and they all sound like tips for, for good health in general. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um but uh, if you, it, uh, you know, there is a long list on sleep hygiene and it's, it's a, a Google it, just Google sleep hygiene because I, I don't have time to go through them in detail here. But I've mentioned some of them and they're often overlooked. The quite basic things like making sure the room's dark, um, um, not exercising too close to bedtime, having a little ritual, not having, uh, you know, a hot bath makes you sleepy, but can make you wake up sooner as well. So not being overheated. And if you just, if people just run through that sleep hygiene checklist and make sure that they're not overlooking some of the basics, that can be really helpful. I find with clients where I'm doing a consultation with them that probably six out of 10 clients have ignored five five or more basic sleep hygiene rules. So we start with those and then move on to some of the more complex stuff. When you were giving those, Deirdre, and you talked about wind down, I kind of heard wine because I know <laughs> a lot of people think that that's a, a great way to relax in the evening and sleep better. Is it? No, uh, sadly, sadly not. Alcohol, I, I've had quite a few people that use alcohol to get to sleep. It will indeed wind you down and probably often people will just fall asleep because they're drowsy through alcohol but it, it um it disrupts the deep wave sleep so you don't get as good a night enough deep wave sleep and you won't wake as refreshed never mind the dehydration and maybe the hangover the actual sleep pattern is affected as well and how about food for dinner? I, I've read certain places that a high-carbohydrate dinner, and I understand as vegans we're getting carbohydrate, protein, and fat in everything that we eat. So it's not like when we talk about uh, people who might just have a piece of fish or something and that's just protein and some fat. But do we sleep better if we have rice or pasta at dinner? Um because those are more complex carbohydrates, but I wouldn't have sugars because they stimulate and they will heat up the body as well as the body tries to, you know, it's a quick sugar. So complex carbohydrates, a great one is like baked sweet potato because it's a complex carbohydrate, but it still gives you that sweet taste that, that a lot of people do like. So um, nothing to that. Um, if you're going to have your, your sweeter things like a pastry, have it earlier in the morning so you're burning it off and you're getting the energy from it then. Now, what about when we're supposed to sleep? Because I feel as if my body is just programmed to wake up at 7 a.m. It almost doesn't matter 
what time zone I'm in, if we've just changed to daylight savings, it's like a part of me is up in the night looking at the clock and, and will wake me up at seven. But I want so, so very much to get up at six because the people who seem to make the most difference in the world <laughs> all get up at six. So am I kidding myself or should I keep at this goal to get up one hour earlier? No, I wouldn't. I And, and I, I, I would kind of, we all have a chronotype and some of it's inbuilt. And, you know, if you want to squeeze an extra time out, think about what can you streamline during the day rather than sacrificing sleep. I think it's way too important. But also, some of the most creative people are night owls. And I certainly never see six o'clock unless I really have to. I, I would might see six o'clock from the other end because I've stayed up <laughs> on the odd occasion when I've got a real brainwave. So it's about working with um, our natural body clocks, but also having to fit into, you know, the world, basically. Um, teenagers by um, fault, just to add it in, do need extra sleep in the morning. So, you know, I, I think schools and things like that should adapt to it rather than us having to force fit ourselves into this modern, you know, it's it's eight to five, eight to five our system. So, yeah. Oh, so that's interesting that, that you are allowing for the night owls because so much that I study in Ayurveda and elsewhere suggests that nature wants us awake when it's light out and asleep when it's dark. But you think there's a little more give than that? Well, I, I absolutely do. I, I, I think, you know, we're all individuals and to force fit our patterns, I think it's really healthy. You have to have a routine. That's one of the first things I, I work with on clients is a routine and our bodies love routine. Um, and it's almost like a baby. If you go back to as a baby sleeps, if you get them into a good routine or even your pet get them into good routine. When do they exercise? When do they eat? When is their stomach expecting food? Then the whole system runs a little bit more like clockwork. But within that routine, you have to allow for individual differences. We're all, we're all different. I I'm love much, that. Much more creative in the evening. It doesn't matter what time I get up. Well, it is wonderful to speak with an expert on a topic who understands that humans are humans <laughs> and we sometimes just need a little slack. So thank you so much, Deirdre Barr. If you would like to learn more about this lovely guest, you can find her at deirdrebarr.com, D-E-I-R-D-R-A-B-A-R-R. -R -R, and you'll find all that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And thank you so much, Deirdre, for sharing this wonderful information with us today. My pleasure. And uh, stay with us, by the way, because we're going to talk about Meet the Future. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. It's always such a treat to be with you and share these amazing ideas about this wonderful way of life. And I do want to let you in on something very, very special that is happening this month. If you watch the show last week, the whole episode was about this, but we're pretty excited about it over here. So I do want to tell you about it again, and that is the Compassion Consortium. You can find out all about it at CompassionConsortium.org. And what this is, is a spiritual center for people who care about animals. So if you have a spiritual or religious community, but you'd like something a little extra that celebrates your animal rights views, your vegan persuasion, the Compassion Consortium is for you. Or if you're not in a spiritual community and you would like one that includes people who share these views, then join us. We are interfaith, inter spiritual and interspecies celebrating that wonderful spiritual ideal that connects all of us. So our very first uh, time together uh, in a Sunday service will be the fourth Sunday of April, April 25th, and that's 4 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. We'll put all this information along with the connections to our two lovely guests today in the show notes at Main Street Vegan. Net. So we'd love to have you. And you know what's so interesting to me is everything connects that our very first featured guest who will be interviewed as part of the spiritual celebration for the first uh, Compassion Consortium gathering will be Bruce Friedrich, who just happens to be featured in the fabulous film from our guest coming up. She is Liz Marshall. The film is Meet the Future. That's M-E-A-T. And Liz is a multi-nominated and award-winning Canadian filmmaker who has written, directed, produced, and filmed socially conscious, impactful documentaries with various collaborators and teams since the 1990s. Her work has been released theatrically on streaming and digital platforms for global broadcast at top-tier film festivals for hundreds of grassroots communities, influencers, celebrities, museums, for world leaders, and they're widely distributed in the educational market. Liz believes in the powerful language and platform of film as a portal through which emotional intellectual and spiritual expansion can occur and liz marshall you have done it again with meet the future welcome to the program oh it's so great to hear your voice again i haven't talked to you in years i know i know but i was reminding my husband today of how we saw your wonderful film the ghosts in our machine at an actual theater oh i know that was amazing in New York. That would have been uh, 2013. Yes. Um, in New York, in the village. That was uh-huh. awesome. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we're all still at it. And one of these days we'll be back in theaters too. So this one is about 
a word that I don't know how to say it. Do we say cultured meat, cultivated meat, lab grown <laughs> meat? What is, what do we call it? I know, I know. The nomenclature has not fully landed, but it the technical term for it um, is uh, used and accepted um, as cell-based meat. And that story around, you know, the language and, and everything is part of Meet the Future. You know, it's because the film is, is really about the birth of an industry. And of course, this is something that's never been done before. And so, of course, you know, the producers of it, the innovators, the conventional meat industry, um, everyone's sort of trying to figure out what it, what do we call this? So we can call it um, cell-based meat. We can call it cultivated meat. Um, we can call it, you know, uh, the future. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting, the language. It is. And it's also interesting about where we are in the technology. I just watched the film today. It's absolutely fabulous. And what struck me, I think, the most is the incredible brilliance and innovation of these people, which is paralleled by their concern for the planet, for animals. You know, sometimes I think we have this idea scientists are often an ivory tower just trying to find stuff out. But these scientists want to change this world for the very much better. How did you find them? Absolutely. I thought everyone was very down to earth. And, you know, because I'm not a scientist, I'm a filmmaker, um, I was always in a state of uh, learning and discovering. So it was really, you know, a three and a half year journey of discovery, um, making the film between 2016 and 2019, and being, you know, on the front lines uh, during the genesis phase of something that is truly spectacular in, in its innovation and its uh, forward thinking. Uh, because now, 2021, of course, uh, the protein revolution is just exploding all around us, it seems, you know, um, week by week, day by day. So the the timeliness of this is wonderful for the film as well and the conversation to be that continues to be had around this topic. But I found, you know, through the microcosm of one startup company, Memphis Meats, based out of uh, the California um, Bay Area, I found everyone so uh, fascinating because these are young sort of geniuses, you know, that want to change the world. Uh, they're very relatable. Yeah. And the founder, Dr. Uma Valetti, is a cardiologist. And I think for so many of my listeners who are voluntarily vegan – a large percentage are whole food, plant-based, very concerned about eating a healthful, animal-free diet. And how fascinating that this cardiologist is trying to emulate animal protein, period, but without the slaughter involved. Did you talk to him about that? Absolutely, because so Meet the Future, the documentary centers around Dr. Uma Valetti, who 
as you said, um, he was a, a very successful American cardiologist. I mean, he was born and raised in India, and then he emigrated and did his training at the Mayo Clinic. But in 2015, he took a very passion-driven, risky career turn uh, to follow his sense of calling and passion, and, um, and that is to co-found Memphis Meats, this little tiny startup company dedicated to the viable commercialization of cell-based meat. So he and his um, co-founder, uh, Nicholas, uh, um, is a wonderful scientist. Uh, so he, he did partner with a scientist um, because Uma's not a scientist. He's a former cardiologist. But they're both visionaries. And they, you know, formed their little teeny tiny team. And that's when we started filming, which was uh, in 2016. And so over the course of those three years of filming, there were so many twists and turns and rapid acceleration for this movement. And for Uma as a CEO, he rose in prominence um, as a leader in this field. Um, and so, of course, you can never predict how a documentary will unfold when you're doing as what's referred to as a character-driven um, story, which is what this film is. And um, it was so great for us as filmmakers to be able to follow a story that had so much progression and momentum to it. Well, it's a fascinating film, and I feel that as interested as I am in this topic, as many friends as I have who were working in the field, I have an understanding of it now that I never did before. So I do want to ask some devil's advocate question, you know, on behalf of, of my audience. I think it was Bruce Friedrich with the Good Food Institute who said within the film, we just have to accept it that ethics is not going to be what powers people's food choices for the majority of people. And I think for those for whom it does, they're just left with, why not? Did you get to the bottom of that? Yeah, no, I, I understand. And of course, um, you know, lament the fact that uh, there aren't more humans in the world that share the same moral compass that we share. Um, you know, we don't want to eat animals and we don't because we see them as our kin. We see them as our, our family. We see them as our friends. Um, I think, and also, I'm also, as I'm sure many of your listeners are also equally, um, passionate environmentalists who care about the natural world and protecting it and, you know, um, the ecosystem and biodiversity and uh, how can we, you know, have a smaller footprint. And I think that this topic, this issue of um, food innovation um, to save the world is really uh, an exciting solution focus that uh, I know for myself as a filmmaker, that was really imperative to me. I don't want to make doom and gloom films. But in terms of answering your question more directly, um, 
I think Bruce's uh, statement there is very interesting. I think it's based largely on surveys that have been done. And in those surveys, uh, indicators really point to the fact that consumers, so the average person, I guess, uh, or people en masse, you know, everyone consumes food, everyone shops and cooks and eats food every day, um, that food choices are based largely on affordability and um, uh, convenience. So can I afford it? Um, and is it conveniently accessible to me in my, in my you know, neighborhood or community? Um, and, and, it's, and choices are, are based less on ethics, meaning, you know, um, did this food, meaning did this meat suffer? It, does this come from an animal that suffered? Or does this, uh, you know, impact the environment negatively? Those kinds of um, questions. Um, so, yeah, cost and accessibility um, seem to be largely what those surveys indicated. So I think when the Good Food Institute launched in 2015, it was really had a laser focus as it continues to have on, you know, um, supporting, advocating for lobbying, et cetera, uh, for the protein revolution. So the birth and proliferation of cell-based, you know, cellular agriculture, but also plant-based uh, meat and uh, protein. And I think what they try to do and what they do very successfully, because um, it's become this global force, uh, the Good Food Institute has chapters all over the globe, um, uh, remarkable people. Um, working, uh, you know, to educate the masses, but also to propel uh, these industries forward. And I think they they really um, take uh, the perspective um, that you have to meet people where they're at and work within the current system to make changes. Uh, transformation would be the key word. Um, Absolutely. Ra ra rather than disruption, it would be transformation. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. And another question that I know that a lot of, of my listeners have and, and other people who have changed their diet to accommodate some of these things is what is the deal with meat? You know, we think about if if we found out that I don't know, strawberries or, or, or watermelon or, or even something people really love like bread was ruining the planet, causing great suffering as well. I think a lot of people would just stop eating it. But there's something about meat that is just so enticing. I don't know if this is physiologically, anthropologically. Do you get into any of that? Yeah, so the film doesn't touch on the roots of the meaning of meat in history, throughout history or in culture, society or for the individual necessarily. It doesn't, it doesn't go down that rabbit hole, 
so to speak, of examining or illuminating um, ideas and thoughts around why meat is so um, is such a large issue. Now, I think just based on the fact that you know we all need protein to survive and to thrive. Um, meat it has been a centerpiece for a very, very long time. Um, and it's changing. So the rise and uh, the mainstreamed effect, uh, mainstream vegan, um, the, main, <laughs> the mainstreaming of uh, plant-based uh, food is incredible but it's also still very a small percentage of people that are actually vegan um so we have to keep that in mind um i i'm an idealist but i'm also a realist or a pragmatist in looking at the big picture you know um roughly 90 percent um of the world eats animal protein and by 2050 um the predictions indicators suggest that meat consumption uh, will double um, due to, um, you know, rising economies. And um, it's not, it, that's depressing, um, but uh, that has been the uh, research. So we need multiple types of solutions. Um, and this is, I think, uh, an incredible solution. I think it will really, and it already is underway. It's, it's viable. It's not a utopian aspiration. It's actually happening. So for people listening who are new to this, you know, you could look it up um, and learn so much, but also if you're following it already, then you know that in December of 2020, Singapore is the first country that has regulated. So the food regulators there, um, you know, have regulated this and it, it's available for consumers. And there's a restaurant there and um, it's available. People are eating it. People are going and eating this food, this meat. Very exciting. And how about the economics of it? I know that you talked in the film as Memphis Meats was... Uh growing and, and developing of how the $18,000 a pound burger, you know, was coming down and down and down. So the meat that's available in, in Singapore, is it very, very expensive? Oh, you know, I don't know the exact price point. Um, I think probably it's, it's about the same uh, cost that people would pay, you know, they pay a premium for it, meaning... You know, it's what people probably pay to eat and, you know, to purchase uh, grass-fed beef, mm -hmm. for, for example. Yes. Um, the, the goal, the business aspiration and the laser focus uh, on the economic side um, of this entire industry that is taking off globally, by the way, there's startups on every continent, more or less, at this point. Whereas when we were start when we were following the story, Memphis Meats was really the first uh, and one of the only startups early on to be uh, really 
tackling the commercial viability of this. So um, it's a, it's just exciting to see how how it continues to expand. But anyways, um, to answer your question about scaling it up, um, that needs to be on par with conventional uh, meat or or less less expensive, so that it's truly accessible and truly competitive. Um, so I mean, I am not. I didn't do a degree in economics, and you know, I'm really a layperson that uh, is a filmmaker um, who learned and continues to learn um, so much about the birth of a new industry um, and its various uh, all of the implications. So you know, um, the economic side, the science, food technology side. Um, and, uh, you'll see in the film, uh, because it, it's at the Cleveland film festival now in the U S and so people in the U S can watch it, um, go to our, uh, website, meetthefuture.com and click on the screenings page and you'll see all of our screenings coming up and the Cleveland film festival, um, has, uh, as of this morning said that it's one of the top films to, to, to look out for at the festival. Anyways, um, sorry to ramble there. No, no, um, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, but just to, 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 just to say there's so many, um, ways of looking at this, um, as a, as a topic, you know, there's the, um, the, the business side, there's the, the innovation side, and then there's all the social, under, social, political, moral underpinnings associated with it. So there's the issue of animal rights, and um, you know how many <laughs> billions of animals can be saved through this incredible, compassionate innovation. Um, and then there's the environmental. Um, angle that we touched on and then of course there's also the human rights angle like who wants to work in a slaughterhouse it's probably one of the worst places on the planet to you know work and workers are underpaid and uh, it's not uh, sanitary and all all of that has come to light um, during covid Yes. Thank, thankfully, that was, you know, and rem it still is in the news cycle, um, you know, plant closures and, and all of that. So the other angle, by the way, is health pandemics. And, you know, COVID-19 is a health pandemic that is um, a zoonotic disease. And zoonoses is, is in simple terms, bacteria that jumps from animals to humans. And so, you know, the, the meat industry in its current form, the way that it is, is a, it, it poses so many public health risks and threats and ongoing issues, you know. Um, so there, there's a lot at stake, you know. And, and that's why, as you said, we need to meet it on every front. And this is, is certainly one of the most exciting ones. One of the lines in um, the, the film, Meet the Future, that really jumped out at me was a gentleman was saying, 
we are a tiny company and we have attracted the attention of two branches of the U.S. government. That's not a direct quote, but I believe the idea is that the USDA and the FDA are having to figure out what to do about this incredible new product that's going to change so much. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, it's true. And that's one of the ways that the film uh, shows Uma being a leader in the field because, you know, his, his style and his approach is very measured and very, he's a real diplomat. He, he, he works under a large tent philosophy. Um, and I think that is really a big key to his success because in 2017, so a year after filming, all of a sudden, the world is paying attention in a very, very big way to this issue unfold because the meat industry itself, so Cargill and Tyson, massive players, um, invest in Uma's company. That really was a shock and a surprise. And uh, it's a pragmatic decision to do business like that because you realize if this is going to actually succeed um, and become a reality, you have to um, uh, play uh, in the same sandbox. Exactly. And, we yeah. could do, I'm so sorry to have to cut you off because we're coming to the end of our time. I think that that the the end is so important that all of this matters and we do have to work together. Thank you so much, Liz Marshall. The film is Meet the Future, M-E-A-T. Check it out at meetthefuture.com or on Instagram, Meet the Future Film. And we'll put all of those in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. May this film change the world <laughs> and the product as well. Thanks to everybody for listening and to Unity Online Radio. To all of you, God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.